Listener supported. WNYC Studios. All right, everybody. Amanda Ronchek is here with me, and she's told me that I need to give you a little warning at the top. We have some adult language and some adult situations, so you've been warned. Now picture a big room. There's about 300 people there. Okay. People are dressed up a little bit, sort of business casual, and they're sitting around tables with tablecloths. And there's wine, and there's cheese. And one by one, a dozen doctors each stand up, they approach a podium at the front of the room, and address the crowd. When I was a first-year medical student... Some 50 years ago or so, I began my training in internal medicine. I love working in the ICU for many reasons. It was a story slam by doctors. It was a doctor slam. Yeah, a doctor slam hosted by the Annals of Internal Medicine. Yeah, that's that journal. It's, it's usually scientific research. Yeah, it's not the moth. It's not the moth. <laughs> so this is a little unusual, but they have this regular feature called On Being a Doctor. It's totally fascinating because I think doctors are there for these very intense moments. They're there for birth. They're there for death and for any illness that you might have in between. But we rarely hear what their take on it is. Yeah, I feel like when I go to the doctor, it's kind of like all about me. You're not thinking about what they're feeling. I think we think that they're just used to it because that's their job. But of course, there are patients that they remember that impact them deeply. So I'm going to play you an example. This is a story from a guy named Dr. Mohammed Nayimuddin. He's doing his residency right now in Philadelphia. And uh, he had this patient, a 30-year-old man, and the man had had this horrible asthma attack and nobody found him for three days. Oh, that's so horrible. It's horrible. And the man was alive, but he wasn't going to survive. And the mother says to the doctor, look, the one thing he really wants is to be an organ donor. Can you make that happen? Oh, what did he say? Doctor says, yes. And then he goes to prepare the son. And I went into the OR ready to get started. And his mom came up to me and she gave me an iPod and said, can you hook this up to the sound system so we can play this as our son dies? And I said, sure. And the song started, and it started with uh, Candle in the Wind. It's a really lovely song. And I saw tears in everybody's eyes. And then My Heart Will Go On came on, and I thought that was also very appropriate. Uh, And then California Girls came on. And I thought, that's a little different. And then uh, Katy Perry's I Want to Touch Your Peacock came on. And for those of you who haven't heard it, it goes, I Want to Touch Your Peacock. Cock, cock. And everybody started laughing. And I started looking around and just wondering what's going on. And the family just started telling me about how amazing a person he was and how much he loved laughter. And he used to just do everything he could to bring joy to their lives. And that's how they were going to remember him. And then the rest of the playlist was just outlandish and beautiful. And it became a dance party at some point. So for the record, the lyrics are actually, I want to see your peacock. Cock, cock. <laughs> and I fact-checked that. <laughs> I'm glad you fact-checked it. Thank you. So all of the stories were like this. Tragic, but kind of funny, too. And full of frustration and anger and joy and some really unexpected things, too. You're going to hear that in the stories coming up. So today on Only Human, we're having our own doctor story slam. You're going to hear three stories, doctors talking about the patients who changed their lives and how they practice medicine. And just a note, all these doctors got permission from their patients to tell these stories, or they changed a couple details to make their patients anonymous. 
All right, who are we hearing from first? The first story is from Dr. Richard Weinberg, and he has been writing about being a doctor for several decades, and he thinks a lot about patients and also about stories. So what kind of doctor is he? He's a gastroenterologist. That means he deals with digestive diseases, so anything from swallowing to ulcers to liver problems. And this is about a patient back in the 1980s, a young woman in her 20s. She came in with a common complaint, stomach pain. But clearly there was more going on. Well, the thing that struck me was that um, she was extraordinarily unkempt. She had this big bulky sweater on. Her hair was sort of greasy and matted. So that was sort of weird. Uh, and, and trying to talk with her was almost impossible. What did she say was bothering her? Well, she said she had chronic abdominal pain. Her stomach hurt. And that's it. My stomach uh, hurts. My stomach hurts. Where does it hurt? All over. When does it hurt? All the time. Does anything make it worse or better? I don't know. I mean, there was nothing There was nothing helpful coming forth, no matter what questions I asked. So this very quickly, in my mind, looked like a completely hopeless case, that I wasn't going to be able to do anything. He was the third gastroenterologist she had been to. They had tried every medicine, run every test, and he was finally out of questions about her stomach pain. So I asked what she did for a living. And she said she ran her father's bakery. So I said, well, I love pastries. You know, I go to the French Gourmet Bakery all the time. I get to Napoleon's. They're so good. And this, like, clicked a switch on with this young woman. She just looked up with fire in her eyes and said, I wouldn't feed a Napoleon from the French Gourmet Bakery to a dog. So this led to about 10 minutes of animated conversation. And there's no part of you that's saying, oh, this is so off topic, we're supposed to be talking about why she feels sick. No, I really like pastry. <laughs> so you're in for this conversation about pastry. <laughs> I'm, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> you know, I'm, I want to go to this bakery now. Right. So where is it? Where is it? Uh, you know, what time is it open? You know, am I, are you going to be there? It's just, you know, wow. <laughs> you know, where abdominal, did I get more Napoleons? <laughs> right. Abdominal pain's getting me nowhere. Napoleons and pastry. Now, now we got someplace to visit this weekend. So this was great. And then all of a sudden, that was it. That was it. She was quiet again. There I am. Uh, I have a weekend destination for pastry and a patient I have absolutely no idea what's wrong with. In that 10-minute conversation, Dr. Weinberg learned that this patient was a devout Catholic. She was an artisanal baker, and she was Italian. But he learned nothing more about her symptoms. I looked on her chart. There was one medicine that we used for this that she hadn't tried, so thank goodness it was something to do. I wrote a prescription. No more words at all. And she left. And um, I said to myself, well, that's the last time I'm going to see her. It wasn't the last time. The patient called, made another appointment, and a week later, she was back at his clinic. She got into the room, and there she was in the corner, completely withdrawn and not particularly communicative. Again. Again. At that point, you know, looking at her, she had these incredible dark bags under her eyes. Hmm. So this, this, I'd already asked every question I could. I, I asked, uh, are you getting enough sleep? And she said, no, I'm not. And so I asked, why? And she said, I have a nightmare. A nightmare. 
a nightmare, not nightmares, not plural, it was singular. I have a nightmare. So the next obvious question is, can you tell me about your nightmare? And she must have taken about 30 seconds sitting there. Was that an awkward 30 seconds between the two of you? No, it was a suspenseful 30 seconds. It was like, what is going to happen here? Because clearly there was some kind of threshold. This was extraordinarily important for this person. So it's either going to back away from the precipice or, or take a leap. And she took a leap. And she told me about her nightmare in which she's in, in a dark church and the lights are dim and all of a sudden monks or some sort of entities grab her and drag her to the altar and pour holy water down her mouth and choke her and she looks up and more entities are coming up the aisle holding huge lit candles and they're getting closer and closer and then she wakes up. Clearly, this is a symbolic dream of being raped. What did you say? I, I asked the next extremely hard but obvious question. I said, have you ever been raped? And then she said, yes, I was. When I was 14, my, my sister's boyfriend raped me late night in the bakery. And, and I said, did you ever tell anyone? And she just at this point broke down crying, said, how could I, I couldn't tell anyone we'd kill my father and destroy my family and no one would have believed me anyway. I, you're the only person I've ever told. Oof. Had anyone ever said anything like that to you? No. And this was back in the dark ages of any kind of awareness of sexual assault. It's, it's, prevalence, its impact on people. You just didn't talk about it. And that is, that's a long time to sit with something like that. It is. And then she told me everything that happened. And it ultimately explained even her symptoms. She couldn't eat. She couldn't go to mass. She couldn't take communion. She felt defiled and, and, and damaged and dirty then fell into this ritual of penitence, almost. Remember, she works in a bakery with lots of good-looking things. She would finally start eating things and eat and eat and eat, and then she would purge, she would vomit. Um, she, she, she developed bulimia. Did this come out over multiple visits, or was this really this one came, this visit? Came, this, came, this came out in 15 minutes. It was, it was one of the most remarkable exchanges in an examining room I've ever had in my life. I'd never encountered this before. We'd never been taught about sexual assault in medical school in those days. Was this, this horrible event had infected her entire life. And yet she was struggling to survive, still managing the bakery, still trudging across town from doctor to doctor. And finally, clearly this was the cause of everything. And, and now I'm saying, 
oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? How am I going to help this person? Because I don't know what I'm doing. How, how on earth do you help someone who's experienced something like this? Remember, this was 30 years ago. Dr. Weinberg said there were less resources, but he could recommend a psychiatrist or a rape counselor. But she refused to go. Instead, every week, she came to see Dr. Weinberg, the gastroenterologist. She'd be his last patient of the day so that they could talk. Meanwhile, he would search for articles about the connections between rape and eating disorders, but he didn't find much. He even asked a psychiatrist friend about what he should do. You know, I told him about the situation. I said, what, is there anything else I should do? And I'll never forget, he said, is she comfortable talking with you? I said, yes, it seems to be. And then question number two was, do you think she's getting any better? And I said, I, I think she is getting a little better. He said, well, that's the way we do it, so just keep on doing what you're doing. Wow. So, <laughs> you must have felt so out of your depth. Well, it was it was and it wasn't in that the gastrointestinal tract is this tremendous transducer of emotions. And anyone who's going to make their life's work in the in the digestive system should have at least some knowledge of how emotions affect. In fact, this is just this is such intuitive knowledge that every language has idioms that expresses the connection between emotions and your GI tract. You can start at the top. The news was hard to swallow. When I heard it, I got all choked up. I have butterflies in my stomach. My guts are tied in knots. My roommate is a pain in the you-know-where. So from top to bottom, there are all these expressions that show you that, that how you feel and what your emotions are can affect the way your whole digestive system works. As it turned out, as, as weeks and months went by, listening seemed to be doing some sort of good. And, and she didn't look so unkempt anymore. And her hair was a little bit neater. And the bags under the eyes resolved. And and, and then one time, <laughs> there was a smile. Why did you laugh? Was it? Did it seem like it came out of nowhere? It was just wonderful. Did you worry about her when you wouldn't see her for a few weeks or if a month went by? I wondered what she was doing, but I wasn't worried because she seemed to be doing well. And then and then there was a time I don't think I'd seen her for two or three months and I figured, well, you know, she's all she's all better and she's found her way and um, I'm glad I could help with that. And is there a little part of you that's disappointed, like, she's gone and I'm not going to see her again and I'll never really know? I did see her one more time. And it was, as usual, at the end of the day, I looked out in the waiting room and there was this beautiful young lady sitting there. And I, uh, and she looked familiar. And then I realized it was, it was this patient. She'd come back, but she was dressed so elegantly as if it was going to be a night on the town. And I realized that she dressed up for me and that this was the last time I was ever going to see her. This was a leave-taking. She said, um, 
the, the reason I really came is to bring you this. I wanted to bring you a gift. And it was a beautiful little box with a bow. So I said, well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, do you want me to open it now? And she said, please do. And I opened the box. And inside were a dozen immaculately, perfectly done Napoleons. That was Dr. Richard Weinberg. He's a writer and gastroenterologist in North Carolina. So, Amanda, this was 30 years ago. How did this woman change how Dr. Weinberg thought about his patients? I think this was the first time that he really understood that people sometimes come in, they've got some complaint, my stomach hurts, my back hurts, but that's not really the story. And so this one was important to him because it was the first time he understood that he needed to establish a rapport with the person so that he could really understand what was wrong. Yeah, it's about more than just symptoms. It's not just the little symptoms and the pills that I throw at it. It can sometimes be much bigger than that. All right. So what's coming up, Amanda? I have two more stories for you. The first one is about a doctor who learns a little too much about a patient's sex life. (laughs) And the second one is about a doctor early in his career meeting a patient who he agonizes over. All right. You're listening to Only Human. Last week, we talked about something everyone's heard of, but few people actually understand. Placebos. And we asked you guys if fake medicine has ever made you feel better. On Facebook, Jenny Densmore told us that when she starts to feel sick, it's mind over matter. I will often tell myself that I just don't feel very well that day, but am not going to get sick or feel bad enough to miss out on any plans or work. And she says this mantra works for her. Rahul Shruff told us his parents taught him about the healing properties of a common kitchen spice. If he twisted an ankle, they would make a paste of turmeric and water and rub it on his foot. I didn't believe that it would work, he told us. But listening to last week's episode made him feel better. I've always thought that believing a medication will work has an impact. Tell us your stories. We love hearing from you. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter or at onlyhuman.org. This is Only Human. I'm Mary Harris. Today, inspired by a doctor story slam, we are hearing stories from doctors about the patients who changed their lives. Amanda, who's next? Okay, now we have a story from a woman named Dr. Rita Mani. Okay, where is she? She is in Bangalore, India now. But back when this story happened, she was working at a large public hospital in South Mumbai. What kind of doctor is she? She's a microbiologist. And uh, at the time, she was working at an HIV clinic uh, in a large public hospital. And as you might imagine, in a very large public hospital, there are too many sick patients and not enough time. So sometimes a doctor will make assumptions about the person sitting in front of them. I don't remember his true name because this happened more than 10 years ago. But let's call him Rohit. 
At the time, she was working at an HIV clinic where anyone could walk in and get the test. So from the place I used to sit in the counselor's room, I could see part of the reception area where patients used to be seated. Usually, when Dr. Mani looked up from her desk, she saw hundreds of sick patients. And I remember that Rohit was quite well-dressed for a public hospital. He was wearing uh, jeans and a very nice stylish shirt. She figured he could probably afford a private hospital. So maybe he was there because the test was anonymous. She didn't know. Then it was his turn for a pre-test counseling session. Had he done anything high risk? He admitted to going to commercial sex workers in India as well as on many of his trips abroad. Aha, he had paid for sex. He had been with prostitutes. Yes, unprotected sex. So she does the test. He is HIV positive. Many people are surprised or are shocked at the report, but uh, he wasn't. In fact, he was unusually quiet. Hmm. When I handed the report to him, he just abruptly stood up and I I thought he avoided my gaze and just uh, walked away. Before he left, he told the doctor that he didn't have kids, but he was married. So he's supposed to come back with his wife for testing. Dr. Mani wasn't sure she'd see him again. But then I was a bit surprised when she came. She was quite attractive. She was smart. And she had a very good career going on. The doctor met with the couple together and then saw them one-on-one. When she met with the wife, who we're calling Anjali, Anjali admitted she was a mess. When Rohit had mentioned to her about his being HIV positive, she had gone through all phases of denial and then anger, depression. She felt really very hurt and betrayed. And she said that in the initial few years of the marriage, they really had uh, gotten along very well. They felt very much in love. But uh, that hadn't stayed the same. And he even suspected that she probably had an extramarital relationship. Anjali told Dr. Mani that she had considered taking her own life. Rohit had ruined everything. And now she might be HIV positive too. In spite of telling me all this, she said she was ready to forgive uh, Rohit. And she said she wanted to remember all the wonderful times that they had together. And this was the time she needed to support him. Of course, we we didn't mention what we knew about Rohit. How did she think he got it? She thought it was just a one-time mistake that he committed. Aha. In one of his stray moments when he wasn't himself. The doctor feared that Anjali was just like the many women she saw at the clinic, day in, day out. Women infected by their husbands. Women who had no choice but to stay loyal. And that is when I went through a, a mix of emotions. I initially felt angry. And then I thought, oh my God, this woman who is so smart, who has a good career, she was ready to forgive him. And I even thought probably she was plain stupid to do this. This was what I was thinking to myself. I continue to remain as poker-faced as I should have been. (laughs) (laughs) Do you you think you managed to have a poker face? Uh, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) She talked a reluctant Anjali into getting the HIV test. They were back the next day, both of them, and she was positive. 
The doctor said that sometimes what happens next is pretty ugly. The wife blames the husband. Husband blames the wife. It's a miserable thing to witness. But that is not what happened with this couple. They surprised us. They were quite calm, as if they were prepared for this verdict. And it was, in fact, very nice to see that both of them comforted each other. And I saw Rohit helping her out of a chair. He held her hands. For a moment, I felt happy that at least this suffering had brought them closer. Uh, what more can we ask for? And then they left. They decided to be treated at a hospital closer to their home, and that was the last time the doctor saw Rohit and Anjali. A few months later, Dr. Rita Mani was working on a research project on the differences between two strains of HIV. Dr. Mani was testing blood samples collected at the public hospital. To know how many of them were HIV-1 and how many of them were HIV-2. And while she was testing the samples, she discovered something. It was at that time that we found that Rohit was infected with the HIV-2 virus and Anjali was infected with HIV-1. So apparently they hadn't acquired the infection from each other. Each of them had acquired it from a different source. They had both gotten it from other people. Yes. Rohit and Anjali had not listed any other risk factors. They must have both contracted HIV from having sex with other people. Dr. Mani and her team debated what to do. They decided to not tell the couple. For treatment purposes, it wouldn't have made any difference then. Do you think that finding out that they got HIV from different people would have been bad for their marriage? Well, I don't know. This disease had brought them closer, and we did not want more skeletons to you know, tumble out of their closet. Didn't they have a right to know? No, they did not, because medically, the testing was done only as a research project. So it was not mandatory for us to call them and reveal this information to them. But morally... Did you owe it to them to tell them the truth? No, because we are in the medical profession and uh, we are not here to do any moral policing. So uh, we thought it was best to leave it at that. Years later, Dr. Mani still remembers this story because it changed how she practices medicine. I'm much less judgmental about anybody, not only with HIV, but with so many other diseases as well. Because you just never know. We just never know. And even if we feel the patient is telling you the truth, it can never ever be the whole truth. Why do you think it's not the whole truth? Because that is what happened, right? I mean, Anjali obviously hadn't told us the whole truth. Right. You have these people in front of you. And in theory, of all the people in the world they should be honest with, they should be honest with their doctors. But still, there's shame and regret and secrets. Yes, That was Dr. Rita Mani. Today, she's a virologist with the National Institute of Mental Health and Neuroscience in Bangalore, India. Her story, Keeping Secrets, was first published in the online journal Pulse, Voices from the Heart of Medicine. 
You can find more stories at pulsevoices.org. All right, we have one last story. And this one was actually at that Dr. Slam that I told you about at the start. Okay, well, what made you pick this one? This one really moved me. And I think it was because you know that doctors are there for these really intense moments. But sometimes they never get to find out what happens at the end of the story. And the patients just disappear. So who's telling the story here? We're going to hear from Dr. Michael Lacombe. This is from about 50 years ago when he began his training in internal medicine. And as part of that training, he and the other residents had to do a mandatory six-week rotation on the psychiatric ward. We all dreaded it. You have to picture a, a ward that's locked. There are patients of every description standing in their doorways, staring at you, not interacting. It's very, very foreign. Do they lock you in too? Yes. Remember that this was the early 60s. There was not much one could do. The major tranquilizers had come out only a few years before, but many patients, especially those who were terribly ill, either did not respond to the major tranquilizers or couldn't take them. On his very first day, he was assigned to follow a single patient, Nancy. Nancy was 17 years old, and he was told to visit with her for two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. And all he knew about Nancy was that she had schizophrenia. She was delusional. She heard voices. I had some sort of abstract notion that these voices that she heard controlled her. And she was a cutter. She was a schizophrenic who cut herself. So you as her doctor, you're a doctor at that point, right? Yes, barely. And you walk into the room and what did you think? Well, the whole thing is very intimidating. You know, I, I guess I was 26, 28 years old. I, I think she was probably 10 years younger than me. I can't remember her ever maintaining eye contact with me, not, not once during the six weeks. She would sit on the bed. The bed was never made, and she would look down. I wasn't getting much from her. It was mostly what I was saying. And the assignment was to go in and talk to this woman two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. That's a lot of time. Yeah, it is a lot of time. What do you possibly talk about for all that time? Oh, I suppose I would talk to her about, <laughs> you know, I had this, this little boy. This was our first son, Mike. And um, whenever I had free time, I would take him fishing. I would often use that as a topic and talk to her about the mechanics of fishing, how he enjoyed it, these types of things. Did she say anything in response? Did she respond to your stories or ask you questions? Amanda, I really don't recall her ever asking me a question where I was from. I had this feeling when I went in that she was glad I was there, that she liked the visit. And yet when I'd go in and and find her covered with blood. And I would just say, oh, Nancy, she would be ashamed. And then I'd think, I don't want her to be ashamed. I don't want to shame her. I, I'm just genuinely um, upset. I'm hurt that she's hurt. When he finished his six weeks, he moved on to his next rotation. But he would still go back to that part of the hospital because he wondered how Nancy was doing. Was she getting better? 
Was she still cutting herself? Was she even there or was she released? And so I'd stop by maybe once a month and really don't remember there being any change. Dr. Lacombe kept going back for about three years. And when his training was finally done, he went to see Nancy for the last time. What I remember is telling her I would write to her. And when I left, the attending said, she will hold you to that. If you have promised to write to her, you have to write to her. And I said, I will. I wrote her uh, or would send her a postcard or a small greeting card several times a year. How long did you do that for? A couple of years, I think. Would she ever write back? No. No, she wouldn't. Then the 50 years passed. 50 years that Dr. Lacombe said were filled with the excitement of medicine, of diagnosis, of treating disease. But there were also days when he felt worn down, when he felt deadened by the weight of hospital bureaucracy and an uncaring administration. Days when his students didn't seem to listen. In the twilight of his career, he sometimes wondered if anything he had done had mattered and if he had done enough for his patients. Two years ago, he was at his job as a cardiologist at Maine General Medical Center, and he was having one of those days when he stopped by the hospital mailroom. Hospital mail is full of what we call throwaways. Sometimes, quite frankly, physicians just reach in, grab the mail, and throw it in the trash. And I sort of leafed through it, and I saw this greeting card, and it had a return address and um, last name that I didn't recognize. He opened the card. On the front, there's a drawing of a boy. The boy's about three or four years old, and he's fishing. Dr. Lacombe realized the card was from Nancy. After almost 50 years, she had finally written him back. He read the card. Dear Dr. Lacombe, many years ago, when you were doing a rotation on the psych ward, I was one of your patients. It is long overdue that I should thank you and tell you how well my life has turned out. I have an amazing husband of 31 and a half years and three wonderful kids, none crazy. I went to school, got my nursing degree, and now I work for a doctor who is like I remember you. I saw this card a long time ago and thought of you fishing with your son. I hope life has been good to you and yours. You deserve to be encouraged for being you when a crazy... When a crazy, cutting teenager needed a friend. Okay, Amanda, you got me. I didn't mean to get you, Dr. Lacombe. <laughs> and that's it. What was it like to get a card like this so many years later? Well can't imagine. I mean, here it is now, a year and a half since I got the card. I've probably read it three dozen times through, and I still break down. Because you really don't know, if you're honest with yourself, you really don't know what effect you have on people. Not on your kids, not on your spouse, um, certainly not with your patients.
That was Dr. Michael Lacombe. He first told this story at the Story Slam last fall. Thanks to Dr. Lacombe, Dr. Christine Lane, and The Journal for all their help. Do you work in healthcare? We want to hear your story. Nurses, EMTs, dentists, pharmacists, get in touch with us on Facebook. We're at Only Human Podcast, or you can email us at onlyhuman at wnyc.org. Mary, more jobs. Pharmacist. Nutritionist. Physiotherapist. Occupational therapist. Otolaryngologist. You beat me with that one. Nurse assistant. Pharmaceutical representative. Registered nurse. Unregistered nurse. (laughs) (laughs) Insurance broker. Oh. Zumba instructor. That is not someone who works in healthcare. You've gone too far. (laughs) Doula. Midwife. You're taking all the lady healthcare. OBGYN. There you go. I got one. Urologist. Urologist. Hemorrhoidologist. They're butt doctors. Butt doctor. <laughs> butt doctor is not a thing. I'll edit this list. <laughs> this episode was produced by Eleni Murphy and edited by Ben Adair. Only Human is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Amanda Aronchik, Elaine Chen, Paige Cowett, Julia Longoria, Kenny Malone, Ankita Rao, Ariana Tobin, and Jillian Weinberger. Our technical director is Michael Raphael. Our executive producer is Lital Malad. Special thanks to Megan Kinane. Jim Schachter is the vice president for news at WNYC. I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you soon. Support for WNYC's health coverage and Only Human is provided by the Torina Endowment Fund, Jane and Gerald Catcher. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Simons Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Winston Foundation.